It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. You're listening to Inside the Times and the Sunday Times, and I'm your host, Emma Tucker, Deputy Editor of The Times. Today we have with us our war correspondent, Anthony Lloyd. He interviewed Shamima Begum, one of the three Bethnal Green schoolgirls who left the UK in 2015 to join Islamic State. Anthony, tell us a bit more about where you met her and how you found her. The battle was going on at the time on the banks of the Euphrates River in the centre of Syria over the last segment of Islamic State territory. And during a break from, from the sort of frontline zone, I went purposefully back to one of the refugee camps. And I went back because I was looking for Shamima Begum and some of the other British wives who were known to have joined Islamic State. Shamima Begum was of particular interest because of her age when she left in 2015. She was 15 years old at the time. And just remind us, we hadn't heard anything from them, had we, since they'd gone? They left in 2015, three of them from Bethnal Green Academy. They followed a fourth girl who had gone over her head at the end of 2014. Now, for a limited amount of time, they were in sporadic contact with their families, but that had really ceased by the end of 2015. One of the girls was known to have been killed in an airstrike in Raqqa, but uh, the fate of the others was totally unknown. Nothing had been heard for about three years. So there was no guarantee that you were going to find any of them? No, there's no guarantee that any of them would have survived. I went to Al Hol camp because that was the logical place to go. It was the largest of seven similar camps. Once I'd been there and told that Shamima Begum was, wasn't there and I'd been asked to leave, the second time I went, I was also told she wasn't there. But it was in a less acute way that I was told that. So I, I waited. I waited for about three hours, talking with camp administration officials and drinking tea and smoking and just waiting and letting the time go by. And they, were, they weren't rejecting me in a strong way. They were saying, listen, we can give you French jihadi brides. We can give you Brazilian jihadi brides. You can speak to Canadian jihadi brides, but you can't speak to any Brits because we don't have any Brits here. So I was sort of batting this in a good-humoured way. Why didn't you get up and leave? I mean, obviously, you could have interviewed any of the others, but you'd come to find the British girls and they were telling you they weren't there. Because their system was chaotic. They were getting a huge influx of people from, at the time, an ongoing battle. They don't have computer systems. They've got sort of paper files. And at one point, 
a foreign nurse from an aid organisation, she was actually Australian, came into the office where I was discussing this with the officials, and just as she walked past me, she whispered the line, there's loads of Brits in. So I just kept with it. And finally, one of the guys got up from the administration staff and he sort of tutted and said, have I not got better things to do than to deal with you sitting in my office? And he wandered out. He said, I'll go and get someone in for you. And he came back with two women in full cab, veiled. And they sat down in front of me. There were two other people in the office, aid workers or administration staff. And the first lady introduced herself. She was Canadian in her early 30s. She had two small blonde-haired kids with her. I spoke to her for a couple of minutes. And then the second girl spoke to me. So the second woman spoke to me, a young woman. And she had a London accent. And I said to her immediately, you're a London girl, aren't you? And she said, yeah, I'm a London girl. I'm a sister from Bethnal Green. And I was like, right, I want everybody... Uh, I want to have this interview without anybody here. I want to control the environment. I don't want anybody else in this room. But it wasn't my room, so I said, would you mind stepping outside with me? And there was a big open yard, wild yard. No one was in it. There was a bench in the shade in the corner. I went outside. She introduced herself as Shamima Begum. I asked her to lift her in the cab so I could see her face, so I could confirm that she was who she said she was, and she certainly was. She lifted her in the cab, and I could see. At that stage, she had been in our whole camp for two weeks. She'd fled the battlefields around on the eastern banks of the Euphrates two weeks earlier. She was very heavily pregnant, nine months pregnant. As the conversation went on, it became apparent that she'd lost two previous of her children, her eight-month-old son, who's called Jara and her 18-month-year-old daughter, Soraya, of combination of malnutrition and disease in the previous four months. And it was a unique interview at that moment because most of the other, in fact, almost all the other interviews I've seen subsequently with jihadi brides or foreign fighters, they're quite contrived. People have had a lot of time to think about what they want to say to a journalist. This was entirely raw. This was... A young woman, very specific case, 15-year-old runaway schoolgirl, that's what we were dealing with, who had spent the subsequent four years, very formative psychological and emotional years, in Islamic State as a devotee. So she was on the one hand the 15-year-old runaway schoolgirl, and on the other hand the indoctrinated Islamic State jihadi bride adult, age 19 now. And she had not thought through what she was going to say to me. Her brain was still in the caliphate. So it was a very, very raw interview. Did you get the feeling that she was relieved to see you, to see someone from home, as it were? I mean, how quickly were you able to establish common ground with her? She wanted, she was desperate. She was um, within days, as it turned out, of giving birth. She was desperate, having lost two kids, to go home. No one knew she was there, no British officials knew she was there. I don't really think actually the camp administration staff knew she was there. So she wanted to find a journalist to let them know she was there. It seems there was a lot of serendipity in the fact, yes, I was, that we'd found each other. I was looking for her. The camp official had gone into the section of the camp for new arrivals and said there's a British journalist out there, he wants to speak to some foreigners. And she was like, right, here I am. That was how that bit worked out. It was a unique interview for the reasons I've described, and yet none of what she said was a particular surprise to me, not the vernacular she used, not her quite, quite cold and self-possessed attitude. But she was also a London girl. Quite a bit of the London banter came out. I found quite she's a bit stroppy and a bit arrogant. That's all right, I can respond to that. Did you feel it, sympathetic towards her? Then, since, and now, I've always felt that I was dealing 
with a young woman who had fled England and joined the Caliphate at 15, and that whatever way she is judged, she should be seen through that prism as being a minor, a child, for the majority of the years that she was in the Caliphate. I felt that then, and I've always felt that since. Some of what she was saying was pretty unattractive, but also some of it, as a war correspondent, wasn't that unusual. So she said a line about seeing a severed head and being unfazed. Well, I suppose some people would be horrified by that and think that that was a really callous thing to say. Well, I've seen plenty of severed heads. Usually they phase me, they don't always phase me. Usually people when they're 19 make remarks out of arrogance and... Uh, and posture. It's very possible when she said, yeah, I saw a severed head, didn't phase me much, that that was what she's saying. Perhaps it had phased her, perhaps it hadn't. I've seen severed heads, as I say. Sometimes they phase me and sometimes they don't. It didn't seem that remarkable. What was more interesting, the conversation was quite, it was, it was a conversation that we had. And it started, the first thing I say, which I say to some people in some circumstances, is, hey, listen, you don't have to speak to me at all. You have to answer one question, not from an intelligence agency. You're here because you want to speak to me, and I really want to speak to you. But you don't have to. If you're uncomfortable with anything, just don't answer it. And don't say no comment, please, because that's what you say to cops, kind of like a prisoner thing. If you don't want to say something, just say, so I'm uncomfortable with that question, I don't want to answer it. It's fine. I'm a journalist. It's no obligation. Now, that works in exactly the way that I want it to work, which is it puts people at ease. If you go in as a TV crew, mm -hmm. and as some people did subsequently, paying off guards to access her and all the rest of it, mm -hmm. she doesn't want to speak to you. She's frightened. With me, as it happened, she wanted a journalist to speak to. She was very isolated, heavily pregnant, disorientated, and talkative. All I had to do was engage with her just on a simple human level, and she would keep talking. And apart from the severed heads, what was the most surprising thing that she said to you? Well, we had a bit of a spar over the journalist issue, because I said, well, what about the murdered journalists you should have seen them on surely you saw those on uh tv before you came out and she's like she gave some line about oh journalists are spies against the caliphate they had it coming to which i said well i'm a journalist sitting here interviewing you and she <laughs> that did get her she kind of looked a bit sort of polax by that one that stuck in my mind a bit did, was she very emotional during the interview particularly for example when she was talking about her children that had, the children that had died was she emotional or did you get the feeling that she'd been that she'd been somehow brainwashed. She wasn't emotional. She wasn't emotional. But people have often suggested to me since, oh, she's really callous or whatever. This woman had lost at the time two infant children in four months. The child she was about to have, a boy who she had a few days after seeing me, then died three weeks subsequently. Mm. So she ended up having lost three children in five months. This is a very traumatised 19-year-old. And I think many people, particularly readers or, or listeners, are very unfamiliar with extreme, extreme trauma. Well, I'm familiar with it because I must spend my life speaking to people who are traumatised in war. And being cold, self-possessed and preserved and clinical is absolutely a first marker that I'm looking for in someone who's traumatised. This is extremely traumatised. I wish she'd just come out of a battle. And that's what I, what I thought. She was cold, unnaturally cold and self-possessed. And just how long did you actually speak to her for that first time? First time was about an hour and a half. Uh, there was only, I think, 22 minutes of that I caught on tape because at the beginning I said, I'd like to take this conversation. And she said, I'd prefer it if you didn't. And so I said, well, if ever that happens, I said, OK, well, I'll come back to this guy. I'm going to ask you again. So I let the conversation go then and without the tape. And it warms and we engage on whatever level. And it is 
This wasn't, as I saw it, a hardcore interview. I'm not there to hit her with, yeah, but what about the Manchester bombings and all the rest of it? Because there's a number of things I've got to bear in mind. First of all, she's essentially a captive. She's in a wired camp. Yes, she does want to see me, but I have to be very, very respectful with the status of any captive I'm interviewing. And there's far more in her case. This was a very, very delicate case, a very unique case amongst the jihadi brides that I've interviewed. And as I say, all I had to do was keep the conversation going and all of this was going to come out, which it did. And I had, it was quite a bipolar experience. She could talk like a London girl. We could even have a bit of a laugh and a bit of banter about half an hour before we finished. And I never knew at which point the guards would come into the camp and say, sorry, you've been talking too much. And they started staring at me from some distance away through the wire. Then I said, listen, it's going to be really helpful if I can tape some of this conversation. And she agreed to that. So I just used my mobile phone and that was about 25 minutes, which was then recorded. And then guards did come up and say, you've talked to her. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. But you also managed to get a picture of her, which obviously made a big difference to how we were able to project the story. Tell us about how you got that. I always carry uh, a camera, a fairly small Canon with me, and I said at the end... Look, it's also going to be very useful if I can take a photograph because it can verify that I have found you and who you are. And she had been barefaced when she spoke to me. She'd removed her veil and that had stayed removed. And she thought about it for a second and said, yeah, OK. So I took, I think, six frames and there was one which was strong frame. What were the logistics for getting the story back to London? Because um, obviously you knew you were sitting on a hell of a story. Yeah, the next bit was quite interesting. So I walked out of the camp. I had a satellite phone with me, which was my only phone connection back to the UK. So I logged into the satellite and got through the foreign desk and spoke to my editor. And I said, I found one of the Bethnal Green girls. It was, of course, a bad line, so the, the signal kept fading in and out. It was a bit of a protracted conversation. And I think I somehow got a message to you. I wasn't quite sure how I did that. But anyway, whatever. found one of the Bethnal Green girls, and I was very cognizant of the weight and gravity of that story. I didn't want to sit around for another day, and neither did he. 
thinking about, oh, how should we put this together and da-da-da, because someone else might go in there and find her. I don't know what was going to happen. I can tell you what happened because, in fact, you emailed the foreign editor and it, the email landed just at the end of conference, morning conference, and we'd all be sitting there. And it was, it was an OK list of news, nothing particularly exciting. And then right at the very end, the foreign editor leant over and gave me his phone and I picked it up and it was an email from you saying you'd found the Bethnal Green schoolgirl. So at that point, the day rather took off. My point then was that I had to drive for two hours before I could get somewhere where I was going to have a decent signal, uh, good enough or Wi-Fi to file, or even where my laptop was, more to the point too. So I had two hours drive and then I knew it would take me about two hours to write the story and then send it to be on time. It had to be sent that day. But also I had another consideration to take into account that before we parted company, Shamima had asked me if I could call her sister in London to let her sister know that she was still alive. And she'd give me a number to call her sister on. And of course I was going to do that. But I was also aware that as soon as the sister got my call, then I was going to lose control of that information. The sister could tweet that information. She could have an established relationship with other journalists and call them up and say, hey, isn't it great? Shamima's alive. And I was uncertain about that. So I thought, well, look, Shamima's life is not in immediate danger. She has got medical access. She is in a camp. I'm going to wait for a couple of hours before I make that call. By the time I got back to the hotel room in Commissioner, which was where my laptop was, I'd structured the story in my head and done a few bullet points on notes. And I suddenly thought, screw it, I'm going to call her sister now. And the reason I did that was very simple and very personal. I'd been a hostage in Syria once, and I knew what the power of a phone call like that is for a family who is desperate to know whether their missing person is dead or alive. It doesn't matter whether that missing person is Islamic State, Jihadi Bride, the hostage journalist, whoever. That phone call will alleviate a huge amount of suffering. And I suddenly thought it's not my right to sit there as a journalist, with perfectly valid considerations of, well, should I wait to do this phone call for six hours, eight hours? I suddenly thought that is going to alleviate a huge amount of stress in a family, in the way my family had that experience when I was a hostage in Syria. And I'm not going to wait to have another conversation with the Times about it, because I'm going to get into a tangle. So I'm just going to do it now. So I called up Shamima's sister before I'd written the story, which was a gamble, but it was also the right thing to do. And that was a very emotional few minutes you know this young woman in London her sister who of course introduced a whole lot of problems for that family by the nature of her choices and going off to join Islamic State getting a phone call I was like hey we haven't spoken before my name's Anthony Lloyd I'm a British journalist for the Times I'm calling you from Syria and I just want to let you know your sister is alive I've just been sitting with her in a refugee camp she asked me to call and it was that was how it started it was a very intense and emotional conversation of course Once that was done, then I sat down to write the story. It had to be written quite fast, but at the same time, that first story was very simple to write because it was like, I found her, this is who she is, this is where she is, and this is what she said, which demonstrated very clearly this sort of bipolar state she was in. On the one hand, still a devotee of the caliphate, and on the other hand, she did express fear, confusion, and was desperate to go back to the UK. Did you anticipate the huge reaction to the story? I anticipated there'd be a huge reaction. I didn't know it was going to be quite such a brutish reaction, and that was the word that I would use to describe the emotion in many sections of, of British society and political, political and civil society and their reaction to it. I thought, of course, it was going to be a heated reaction 
to the story because between Shamima Begum leaving the UK and me finding her, our country had suffered a series of absolutely horrific terrorist attacks that are uh, inspired by Islamic State, Westminster attacks, the Manchester bombings. A lot of people have been killed and those attacks have caused a lot of outrage and quite understandably so. However, I nevertheless thought that in Shamima Begum's case, the country would recall that she was a 15-year-old schoolgirl who had run away. And that at the time, not only was a majority of the country very concerned for her, but if you listen to the Met Commissioner at the time, Sir Bernard Hogan Howe, and his deputy addressing select committees at the Commons, they made it absolutely clear in 2015 that those girls could return to the UK without charge if no terrorist offence had been committed subsequent to them going, and that they were very eager for the girls to come home and for them to know that they should come home. Well, that was in 2015. Within three days, I think, of me finding her and breaking that story, three days in which no other journalist had got to her, may I add, the Home Secretary Saji Javid had revoked her British citizenship. The country was in uproar, uh, condemning her for her lack of remorse and lack of regret and saying she shouldn't be back, allowed back in the country and she should have her citizenship revoked. That spilled my way too. I was subjected to a lot of hate mail, people getting through to my email accounts and hacking into Facebook, comments made in the street. I was called a disgrace to my country. I mean, I'm talking about a lot of hate mail. I'm not talking about a little bit of hate mail. I'm talking about deluged on social media with hate mail. So were you wary, because you also interviewed her a second time in April, were you wary about talking to her again and, and had she changed? No, I wasn't wary. I was hungry to, and I was hungry to fight back out of my corner. I was absolutely sure that what I'd said in finding her and commenting on finding her the first time round, particularly in a second story I'd written just a few days later on decoding Shamima Begum, in which I tried to demonstrate to people how to read what she said through my own experience of dealing before with jihadi brides and extremists all around the world, and to say that here was a, a young woman who was probably more need in, uh, in need of certainly repatriation, inve- repatriation, investigation and rehabilitation rather than being banished from the country. I felt totally convinced that I was right in that. I feel totally convinced now that I was right in that. And far from being coy about going back to see her again, I wanted to go and see back again, and I wanted to, you know, fight, fight back the case that I was, with the case I was presenting. The one question I had, of course, was whether she would see me again. Because in the interval, not only she lost her citizenship and been the subject of this sort of brutish reaction, but then she'd given birth and her third child died too. So it would be very natural to assume that she might think, I'm not going to see Anthony Lloyd again, because he was the guy I saw, and then all this has followed subsequently, negative stuff. So how had she changed? First of all, she did agree to see me. She hadn't seen another journalist since the death of her child, or before the death of her child. And she did agree to see me, and I thought that suggested quite a lot of sophistication on her part. It was also helpful to me, because one hopes as a journalist that one's work will have a positive impact. That's not a given. It's not a certainty. It's not always the reason one does one work. One does one's work to inform society. Information then drives policy, hopefully in a positive direction. But in this case, I wasn't looking too much positive about you know the story that, quite rightfully, I had I had sought, found, and written. The immediate reaction was entirely negative, and I thought she might see it that way too. But. She was a bit more sophisticated than that. She said, actually, you were the only journalist that I wanted to see in the first place. And she was aware somehow of what I'd written. And she said, I will see you again. 
It was a very, very interesting interview the second time. She had been moved away from Al Hol camp, where it's now 70,000 people, 75,000 people. It was in a much smaller camp called Al Raj, where there were just 600 families. She was much more reflective. The conversation, the whole timbre and tone of it was, was much gentler. It was much more adult. She expressed clear remorse and confusion. She got articulate. The people in the camp with her were different too. Of course, you could find radicalised brides there, but there were a lot who were very disaffected uh, Islamic State wives, and that was the group she was hanging out with, according to the, the camp governor, should I say, who was a Kurdish woman. And I spoke with the Kurdish woman a lot for a long time before I saw Shamima to actually get someone else's take on, look, how is she and, and how is she doing? She knew she'd be there for a long time. And she knew the legal case was starting to um, have her British citizenship reinstated. Most interesting, I think, in the second interview was I had the time actually say, hey, look, how did it all begin? What brought you here? Why did it all go wrong? And, of course, it started off as a depressed 15-year-old without many friends, feeling isolated at school, a bit divided within her own family or divided from her own family, and then someone suggesting to her that she should practice her faith more seriously. Pretty soon... Then people started threatening her online with hellfire if she, unless she became more devout. And she, as a sort of disaffected 15-year-old, slightly depressed, who didn't feel they belonged at that stage in that moment in her life, very quickly became radicalised. And Anthony, what do you think uh, should happen to her now? Oh, as I've always said, she should be repatriated, she should be investigated to find out exactly what she did or didn't do in Syria. I mean, we can only work out what she did. When she's brought back here, and legally she should be brought back here, she was a minor when she went, she was a minor for the majority of the time she was in Islamic State, we should regard her, that case, special case, her case, exactly as we would regard the case of a child soldier who came in from an African army. It's like, you might have done some bad stuff, you might not have done some bad stuff. So let's find out what you have and haven't done and then we're going to see whether we need to prosecute you and send you to prison for a while or, or and or, put you on a, a, tra- a rehabilitation track to repatriate, repatriate you properly into our society. She's not a Bangladeshi citizen. She's a British citizen. She was born in Britain. She's a child of our society and she should be dealt with by our society over here in Britain. Anthony, this has been fascinating. Thank you very much. This has been produced by Alexis Sogal and Sam Joyner. Additional research was done by James Stannard. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.